Sometimes the people we meet at a very young age can shape the path our life takes. Imagine being challenged by a fellow elementary school student who surprisingly not only had a similar interest in birds, but claimed to know more than you. Such was the case with Scott Terrell, who grew up surrounded by remarkable individuals, whether it be school teachers and administrators, scout leaders, family members, senior citizen Audubon members, or serendipitous connections with some of Birding's notable figures. Having remarkable opportunities as a young man, Scott eventually went on to earn advanced degrees, to become a research fellow at the Max Planck Institute in Germany, and is now an internationally recognized ornithologist who has been serving for decades as a leading research environmental consultant for H.T. Harvey & Associates in California. Scott has published over 30 scientific papers and was the primary contributing author to the three-volume advanced field guide, the Audubon Society Master Guide to Birding. In addition to serving other editorial responsibilities, Scott has also served 20 years on the California Bird Records Committee. It is my honor to introduce Scott Terrell. Well, Scott, where and when did you first start birding? I started birding when I was in fifth grade. My mom was a Cub Scout den leader, and she did a session on, on birding, on birds, actually. And as part of that session, one of the Cub Scouts had an older brother that was a Boy Scout, and he was in a troop that was actually run by a medical doctor who was also a, a, a great natural historian. So we did the bird session, and the Scout took us out birding to Mountain View Cemetery in Piedmont. Yeah, that was my first birding experience, and I think probably I was most impressed with the, the red-tailed hawk. So I was very interested, and so my mother actually got a a poster of birds, and, a, and for my 10th birthday, I guess it was, I got a book specifically tailored for kids, and the introduction included a section about starting to bird in your yard, and then it went on to say, then your dad becomes interested, or your parents become interested, and then they take you to the seashore, and you see all these new birds, and by the way, there's this thing called a life list, <laughs> and I got very interested. His name was Ernest S. Booth, and it was Western Bird Guide for Youth. And it was written in 1963, hot off the press. That got me started. The other main thing that really kind of launched it was I went into the school library and uh, they had a little section on birds. And included in that section was a, the sort of massive volume, Birds of North America. And that's an old volume that was published, I think, in the 20s or maybe in the 30s. And I had taken it out a few times and looked at it. And I went to, to go get it. And as far as I knew, there was no other kid in the whole school who cared about birds at all, right? Right. Yeah. And, and, there was a, and there was a kid there looking at the book. And I said, uh, I said oh, wow, are you, are you interested in birds? You know? And he looked up at me, also in fifth grade. And he, and he was in another fifth grade class, so I didn't know. And he said, yeah, and I bet I know more about him than you do. <laughs> we became uh, good friends. And his name was Richard Erickson or Dick Erickson. And uh, Dick is, he's now in Southern California, and he's basically very intensely interested in Birds of Baja, California. And he, he's working on publications on, on the Birds of Baja, and he spends most of his field time down there these days. But he was a very active, had a, a long history of a lot of very active birding in California, including me on the Rare Bird Committee and all that. So anyway, so Dick and I, I think probably it's fair to say that since I had a contemporary who was also very interested in birds. That helped a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And I also got transferred into his class. The teacher was very interested in our interest in birds. So she let us set up a bird corner <laughs> in the in the in the class. And if we finished our homework and stuff in time, we could go work on birds. And that that was very cool. And the other thing they let us do is put feeders up outside. 
And finally, the other thing that I think really kind of helped was we started at, a, at fifth and I think fifth grade, but perhaps maybe it was sixth grade, going to Lake Merritt as uh, volunteers, little kids, but we were volunteers wow. at the Rotary Natural Science Center there where Paul Cavell was there. And actually, Rich's dad worked there as a naturalist uh, at one point, Rich Stalkup. Yeah, his dad worked there and his cousin still worked there. But anyway, so uh, Dick and I would go over there after school. And in those days, Lake Merritt had a whole bunch of aviaries with birds, uh, including raptors, caracaras, uh, had a big cage full of herons and ducks and stuff. And we, we would feed them all. We'd kill the chickens, take their heads off, <laughs> feed feed oh the, the, the raptors and got to sort of hang out in the at the science center there and, and looked at specimens with Paul Cavell. And at that point, Paul Cavell was he was a conservation chairman for the Golden Gate Ottoman Society. And at that point, Golden Gate Ottoman Society, like many, most of the Ottoman societies, was it was not an activist group. It was a birding group. And, sure. you know, Paul Paul was, was always trying to get them more interested in conservation. You know, that gave us a lot of direct exposure to, to birds. Caracaris. And also, <laughs> yeah, it was a caracara that, that they kept there. And I, I would mimic its courtship call and display. And it would send it into a, <laughs> a frenzy. <laughs> I'd walk by and and do the you know brr, 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 at it, and it would respond to do the full courtship back. <laughs> I did also get raked by a great horned owl one time when I went in that cage. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it's it is kind of a yeah a scary experience. The other thing was about sixth grade. Dick joined Golden Gate Ottoman Society and started doing field trips, and I I did as well. In those days, the number of birders, active birders, was pretty small. And the number of very active birders was very small. But the Ottoman folks, you know, it was mostly older women, and they were they were great. I mean, there was one in particular, her name was Enid, E-N-I-D, Austin. And Mrs. Austin used to come and pick me up in her VW bug and take me birding, and, uh, and Dick too. She was, uh, I think at that point, she was the treasurer for the Cooper Ornithological Society, but she knew Grinnell. And Miller, you know, and all of that. And she took me and showed me a lot of my life warbling vireo and life chipping sparrow and all these things. Between, you know, her and then the and the Golden Gate Ottoman people, that was a big help. You and Dick were, I'm sure, so unique to their ranks that people probably took an instant interest in helping you. Yeah, I think so. There was one other young guy whose father and brother were birders, and he was our age. They went on a couple of the field trips, but they didn't go on as many as they, they birded more on their own. But those were the Greenbergs. Uh, Russ's dad taught at Stanford, and he was one of the intensive birders up here back then. And, and Russ, anyway, Russ worked to help Dave DeSani a lot in the field when Russ was in high school. And Russ went on to do a PhD and wound up at the Smithsonian and the bird research program there. Yeah, he passed away uh, from cancer a couple of years ago, but Russ and Dick and I were, were pretty unique. Having Dick as a friend through junior high and high school really helped kind of keep me going and birding because it would kind of drop off the radar for a little bit. And then, you know, Dick would call and we'd go out or whatever. And so that friendship probably had a lot to do with my continuing interest. The other thing that was an influence was Doc Bowles, the, the scoutmaster. He was a medical doctor. He was a great guy. He, he was a scoutmaster for 50 years or so. I think he was in his 70s. He was a great all-around naturalist, so he taught me or taught us plants, and he, you know, he knew all the bird calls, and he was the treasurer for Golden Gate Ottoman, and he also knew Grinnell and, and Miller and <laughs> and uh, those guys. Oh, the other the other thing uh, to mention is I actually picked up Booth 
the same author of the Youth Guide had published a, a more advanced field book, but I didn't know about Peterson at that time. And then Peterson came out his revised edition to Western Birds, I think, 64. And Dick got a copy of that. And when I saw that, of course, I went out and got a copy of that immediately. But the other book that was influential was one that the Golden Gate Ottoman people recommended. And that was Hoffman's Birds of Pacific States, which actually, in addition to having field marks, it wasn't really a field guide. It was more a guide to behavior and distribution with, with comments about identification, but it was more sort of a field guide to natural history of the birds of the Pacific States. And that was a book that sort of shed more light on, on what we were looking at besides what it was. Uh, when I was 11, I went on my first boat trip. And that was when I first met Guy McCaskey. And back then, Guy and Rich were basically birding legends, not only in the state, but on a large scale. And I first ran into Guy, and the Ottoman folks put me up on the leader's deck with Guy. That <laughs> was quite um, an eye-opener for me. Just uh, I learned, you know, over the years, I learned a tremendous amount from Guy and from Rich. And they were finding vagrants, and that was that was a very novel situation. I mean, there there have always been a handful of records of, of eastern vagrants in California. But, you know, back then they called them accidentals. It was quite a rare occurrence, and people did not anticipate that vagrants would occur on anything less than an accidental basis. And both Guy and Rich and a few others, Paul Benedictus and uh, Peter Pyle's dad, Bob Pyle, Ted Chandick, and a few others were, well, Rich, Rich and Paul Benedictus and Guy, I think, pretty much discovered that there were areas in California where you could regularly see vagrants. And that would include Point Reyes. Well, Guy moved down to San Diego. And his first year there, basically, I think it was his first year, he found a whole bunch of first state records. And then at the same time, Rich and Paul and maybe Peter's dad saw, you know, the old records for uh, vagrants out on the Farallon Islands that Dawson had collected. And so they thought, well, we should go out to the end of Point Reyes (laughs) and see if it, you know, if there's something to this. And and they did. And and they found vagrants. In fact, there was an Ottoman field trip back there, Golden Gate, way back. And I wasn't on that. before my time, where the Ottoman folks asked Guy and Rich, they were they had a field trip to, to Point Reyes. And back then, of course, the field trips to Tomales Bay and Point Reyes were about just seeing the, the local birds. And they asked, well, what are we going to see today? And based on the time of year and like one record or something, uh, Rich and, and Guy said, well, we're going to see tropical kingbird. And everybody laughed. <laughs> and they went out and, of course, they, they found a tropical kingbird, which was unheard of. But Guy uh, was finding vagrants uh, and collecting them in those days. He had to collect them and publishing in the Condor on these vagrants in San Diego and in Death Valley and Rich and others were up here going out and finding these vagrants on the outer coast, primarily in Point Reyes, but also Point Pinos and Monterey. And so this was pretty new on the horizon. And, and going out with these guys, we started to learn about being careful with identifications. Now, when we were young, when Dick and I were in middle school and, and to a lesser degree high school, we were also a little reckless. In fact, vagrants were all kind of all over the place. And, and we, didn't, we didn't have a whole lot of experience still with, with sort of the subtle points of identification, especially especially with vagrants. But we learned from, from Guy and Rich and from others about what to look for and how to, how to look for it. What do you remember about any sort of a methodology to that? <laughs> I do remember, and this is probably, this is not much of a methodology, but it, it's, a, it's a comment that sticks in my mind. And I was with Guy, later, later I went to San Diego State, to, mostly because I wanted to bird with Guy. I went there for my freshman year. And we were out and 
at Myers Ranch in the Tijuana River Valley, and, and Guy Guy was finding vagrants like Magnolia, and then he found a chestnut side, and then he found a Tennessee or something. And I finally said, Guy, how the hell do you do that? How, how do you find these things? And Guy says, well, I just look for something different. <laughs> So the the wisdom in that was that you need to get out a lot and look at the common birds all the time and get an appreciation for how much they vary beyond what's in the field guides. That was one thing that Rich and Guy used to pass on is that you can't, a lot of these, these rare birds, there's a lot more complexity to identifying them than you get from the field guides. And so Guy in particular steered me to Birds of Canada that he really liked for immature warblers. And, and some you know subtle sparrow things, and also the Ottoman guides that Poe did, which were more informative for identifying these out of range birds because they showed more variation. You went from zero to sixty, yeah. and you had exposure to some of the more pronounced leaders of our birding community to this day. I mean, have you yeah. ever kind of thought back on that and realized how special that was? Yes, yes, absolutely. It was yeah, very special. Has that shaped how you yourself work with young birders now? Yeah. My wife and I, we're both birders and we do a lot of trips. And our son just, we have a daughter and a son, and he just finished his PhD uh, under Van Remsen at LSU. He's actually a co-author on the new book, Birds of Bolivia. Wow. And where this is going is that as he was growing up, he ran into some young birder friends too. And we've always really enjoyed going out with all the young birders in California. In fact, you know, we used to pick up some of them before they could drive and take them with us. So yeah, I thoroughly enjoy birding and and mentoring to the degree I can young birders. Absolutely. What was going on in the birding community as you were having these great experiences and meeting these remarkable people? You were, you were probably also being exposed to other developments in the birding world, ecotourism, better field guides, publications, generally a growing interest in bird watching. Can you talk a little bit about that? The birding community was still, this was in, you know, in the 60s and into the early 70s, was, was pretty small, but we saw kind of an explosion. I, I left California in 73 and moved to Arizona. And about that time, the interest level really started to increase. And so when I was in high school and before I could drive, I would go on desert trips with Rich and a guy named Ron LaValle and a, a few other people. On these desert trips and all these trips when I was in high school with Rich and at all, we'd spend all night riding for herps and then all day birding <laughs> and, right. and Rich. So Rich was very interested in plants and you know er- everything. And that's something that a lot of the young people today that are birders are also very interested in botany and herps and you know, that's great. And there would typically be one or two cars at most from Northern California and maybe we'd run into one car from Southern California. In the maybe 73, 74, 75, became 40 people. <laughs> it went from like six or eight people who were doing this circuit in Death Valley and the Southern Desert to big, big caravans. Why was it growing? I don't know exactly why it was growing. Birding was starting to take off more. And there was a very intense interest by a lot of these new birders in these vagrants and systematically looking for them. The other thing I was going to mention is also in high school, I volunteered as a bander at uh, PRBO and actually went out to the Farallons on one trip anyway. It was still very small. Palomarin, you know, was was it. Uh, John Smale was the director. I think he was the only actual employee at the time. John Winter was volunteering there. Of course, Rich did stuff out there around the valley, a guy named Billy Clow. So when I was in high school, handling birds and learning how to age in sexton was, was a big help in terms of my field skills, but also developing love of science. And in high school, the, the dean and, and the administration was very supportive and they, they would give me a pass to go, go birding, basically, wow. or 
to go out in the Fairlawns or to go to the Point and band. Dick and I both got a week off to go up to Molinas to help with the first oil spill cleanup. This was maybe 1970. I'm not sure, 70, around 70. But it was the first attempt to actually bring birds in and, and clean them up. And, and they, were, they didn't really know how to do it. They were trying different methods. And basically, the Palom Wren people were, were running the show. Uh, I think Dave Ainley was running it. It was good both in grade school and in high school. had very favorable teachers and, and administration to uh, promote our interests. Let's see, the other thing that was going on in high school that is interesting is that so I grew up in Oakland, but my parents moved to Piedmont when I was in ninth grade. And Len Wagstack had the bird calling contest going. Yeah. It still exists. Yeah, I judged it a couple of years ago again. And Len, I was in his marine biology class and doing the key to the marine birds. I wanted to be in the bird calling contest, but he said, no, that, that would be unfair. So I, I was the official coach <laughs> for while I was in high school for the bird calling contest. Two things came out of that. One is that when I came back to Piedmont after my freshman year, the administration of Piedmont High asked me if I would teach an adult class on birding. <laughs> and so I think that was the first, you know, sort of adult night school birding class offered anywhere <laughs> in the Bay Area anyway that I, that I know about. And then the other thing that came out of that is I went down with Waxstack down to the Braille Institute in Southern California. And I did a class on bird watching for the blind. <laughs> you know, it was kind of amazing. I would play these songs and talk to people about what the birds were and where they were and all that. You know, half of them, they'd say, I hear that all the time, or I've heard that, you know, and, and that just wouldn't happen with sighted folks. So continue the story for us, Scott. How did you go from being a recreational birder to doing what you're doing today? When I went to San Diego, I was actually in, interested in environmental law, and I was a, a poli-sci student. I was also interested in, in politics and in philosophy. And I was birding all the time with Guy. In fact, I went out with Guy every weekend, I think, while I was down there. And John Winter was down there working. He was working on his undergraduate degree in zoology. And John and I birded all the time. So that my freshman year, I, I really spent a lot of time with Guy. And I learned a, a huge amount in the field. But also Guy got me reading more professional journals, which at that time were heavy stuff. And then he asked if I would be the editor for California Birds at that time. So that was quite an experience for somebody who's like, I was 18, I think. You're starting to sound a whole lot like a wunderkind here, Scott. Yeah, well, I, that, <laughs> well, I don't know about that. When I moved to Arizona in 73, it was still California birds, and they wanted a, an editor that was in California, so it didn't last too long, but it was an experience nonetheless. When um, Dick and I were had turned 16, or I had just turned 16. We took a bus to Arizona to go birding, and we went down and stayed with, quote-unquote, with, with his aunt, and she was very progressive type with a, a hippie son and stuff. And so we went down there with our you know, parents basically thinking we were going to stay there. And first day, she basically took us down to Madera Canyon. And we had our sleeping bag and some bologna and <laughs> she dropped us off. <laughs> so we were planning on just hitchhiking Southeast Arizona. The first afternoon we were there, we ran into, we were in Madera, we ran into Jim Lane, who had published the first bird finding guide, just first period bird finding guide outside of Pentonville. But it was a bird finding guide to southeastern Arizona. And you knew this at the time? Well, we had the, the guide with us, but we, we had no idea Jim was going to be there. Uh, but Jim Lane basically, you know, he had a van and, and we hooked up with him and we birded with him, I mean, uh, for a couple of days. And then we ran into Ted Parker. And Ted was, Ted and I were the same age. We were both 16. And Ted was on his first trip out west with two older guys from Pennsylvania. 
And so we hooked up with Ted and those guys, and there was room in the car for Dick and I. So aside from the first couple of days trying to hitchhike around, we basically hooked up with Ted and these guys and birded southeast Arizona without having to hitchhike and got to know Ted quite well. And actually, you know, I, this is sort of fun. And I remember Ted was kind of amazed that I could tell a blackfooted gray warbler by its chip note. And he was asking how and stuff. And he got on that trip, we got very interested in... You were the impetus for the, <laughs> the legendary I, I Ted Parker. <laughs> I wouldn't say I was the impetus, but I would say that it, it was, I saw the early start. Let, let's put it that way. But yeah. And, and of course, he became just remarkable in the neotropic with vocalization. So... Those serendipitous meetings that we have out in the field, you know, in hindsight, we realize how significant they were. I'm not trying to say it was so significant. What I'm saying is, it, you know, I was there sort of sharing the sort of the beginning of his interest in, in vocalizations, I guess, or at least that's what it appeared to be to me. Yeah. And we were very fortunate that we ran into first Jim, who took us around, knew where everything was, and then ran into Ted and those guys. And I mean, all the places we had dreamed about trying to get to by hitchhiking or taking a bus, whatever, all of a sudden we had a car and people with, you know, the exact same right, interests. Yeah. And actually, you know, I moved to Arizona and I went to Arizona State and Ted was at U of A at that time. So we were both in Arizona and um, Ken Kaufman also started spending a lot of time in Arizona. And so I got to know Ken quite well. And the other thing that I was, uh, again, very fortunate is when I moved to Arizona State, there was a professor in wildlife there. His name was uh, Bob Omart. And Bob had a, a research program, but NEPA, the National Environmental Protection Act, and FISA, the Federal Endangered Species Act, had both basically just been passed and en enacted. And the requirements uh, of NEPA and FISA required that the federal agencies had to assess the environmental impacts of their actions. And this was this was brand new. And there was no consulting group or private firm who could do this stuff. So the Bureau of Reclamation had these massive proposed projects in Arizona, especially the Central Arizona Project, as well as some others. And they basically hired Omar to do their environmental documentation. So Omar had the money, the funding to go out to do the field work, but he was also very efficient at using funds to satisfy the requirements, but to be able to stretch those funds to provide opportunities for undergrad and for graduate students. And so we would, for example, go out, do the work that we needed to do for the NEPA document, but then we'd spend the rest of the day doing basic research. So it was a great growth opportunity for me in science, I'll tell you, because I was an undergrad and Omar interviewed me and put me to work the same day. And I worked 30 hours a week during the academic semesters. And then I worked full-time plus <laughs> during the summer doing bird transects, vegetation transects, trapping mammals, and then, you know, recording all the data. And then I switched my major to zoology. And then I stayed in Omar's lab to do my master's. And that actually, that master's, I was able to publish a year or two later as a lead article in the AUK. I, I've always been in, really interested in migration. Ted got very interested in neotropical birds, and I got very interested in, in migration. So that's the direction my research went. At the same time, I was also you know, birding like crazy. And when I got to the Phoenix area in 73, as I was temporarily staying in an apartment trying to find a place to live, a friend of the person I was staying with brought in this book called Birds of Maricopa County. And it was also, I think, published in 73, so it was just published. And it was the first time I'd ever seen a county book. And it was great because it you know, it had distribution abundance charts. It had uh, little paragraphs about each species. It basically modeled after McCaskey and Benedictus as uh, birds of Northern California and Smalls, birds of Southern California. Anyway, but it was the first one I'd seen on the county. So I had this 
information and and I, I contacted the uh, the authors. But Phoenix, in fact, all of Arizona was still burning, kind of like California was burning pre Guy and Richard's influence. In that the field trips were primarily geared towards going to the same places each year and looking at the same species. And you know, occasionally these you know vagrants were encountered and stuff. But I basically, after being in California all those years, just started burning like I was burning in California. I I would go out and find a remote oasis or, or area that looked like it'd be good for vagrants and find vagrants. <laughs> and this was new on the Arizona scene. And then Ken, of course, Ken Kaufman was, was in the Phoenix area too, and he started going out with me. And we started burning a lot with Janet and Bob Weitzman. Janet was one of the authors on the Birds of Maricopa County. And actually, I just I wrote the foreword for the third edition of the Birds of Phoenix and Maricopa County that just got published. So I was birding quite a bit while I was also a student. And I got married when I was between my bachelor's and my master's. Her name's Linda. She was living in Southern California. I had a, a house in Tempe, and I was renting rooms out to Gary Rosenberg and Ken Rosenberg. Ken is now at Cornell. Ken worked in Omar's lab, too. Gary worked for Wings for years, and now, now he's got his own burdening company. Omar had a big crew on the Colorado River, and they would work like seven days a week for a month or two, and then they'd come over to my house, and we'd have a big party. And so they could blow off steam, and then they'd go back to the field. And uh, we were in the midst of one of these three-day parties, and Elaine Cook, who was Ken Kaufman's wife, at the time. And Linda, Linda had come out from California to go to this art show in Scottsdale. And they were on their way south from that. And Elaine said, well, do you want to stop at the birdhouse? I hear they're going to show some slides of Mexican birds. So Linda said, sure. So anyway, Linda and Elaine came by and were showing these slides, you know, stepping over the empty beer cans and <laughs> looking at these slides. And Linda said, I'd love to go to Mexico. And I said, well, we're going to go in March. You want to go? And so she said, sure. <laughs> and the two guys, the three guys I was going with, I, I thought, they wondered what the hell I was doing. So basically our first date was a, we drove over spring break. Linda came out on a Friday night from San Diego with a VW bug. And then uh, Ken and Gary Rosenberg and Alton Higgins took Gary's car and we left about midnight or one in the morning. And we basically drove nonstop across Arizona, New Mexico and Texas. And we drove down to Palenque. So we drove almost to the Guatemalan border birding <laughs> and we birded Palenque and then we uh, and Tabasco a bit and then we came back up and birded Veracruz and then came back from Texas to California and Arizona basically and, and just over spring break. So that was our first date. <laughs> so wow. we always say, well, either either you're never going to speak to each other again or you're going to get married. <laughs> and so for us it was it was the latter. <laughs> so you got your your masters in zoology, then went off and got your doctorate. I know there's a lot that has gone on since that time, but ultimately, what has birding led to in your life? I went to SUNY Albany because they had a great behavioral ecology group there, and I was very interested in the behavioral ecology of bird migration. And Ken Abel was there. Ken Abel had been working on migration, specifically he's one of the leaders in research on bird orientation and navigation. And Jerem Brown, who was a, one of the big figures in sociobiology was there. Ron Pulliam, who was an outstanding ecologist, was there. And they were all on my committee. And they had a great department. So I had worked in the field and the lab on migratory behavior at Arizona State. And then I was very interested in how the environmental, how approximate environmental factors influence migratory behavior on top of the genetic programming that, that leads to the migratory behavior. So I went to Germany to the Max Planck Institute and worked with Peter Berthold, but also Abel Gwinner and, and others. I could spend an hour talking about the Max Planck Institute. 
that wedding or merging how environmental variables like food availability and social environment interact with the genetic program for bird migration. And it was a great lab for that. And we basically, I think, came up with a sort of a synthesis that was a new examination of how in annual migrants, birds that migrate every year, how the environment at stopover points and in the, in the wintering grounds influences the distance of migration as well as the, the velocity of migration. And then when I came back, I had a assistant professor teaching position at Siena College, and I was an associate at SUNY Albany, and so I taught classes at both, and I did research at SUNY uh, with Ken, but looking for academic positions back then was, was very competitive. We liked upstate New York, but I really wanted to get back to California. My parents were here. And we had children now. They're grandchildren, and we're only seeing them once a year, and so I saw an ad for a senior ornithologist for H.T. Harvey Associates, and Dick Newell, who was a very well-respected ornithologist who published some really good stuff, was an ornithologist with H.T. Harvey. Associates. I figured, well, if Dick, if he's associated with it, it must be a good company. So I, I had done consulting as a master's student I, on my own. The niche for consulting had just opened up. I did some of that. So I had done it. And uh, I, I flew out and applied for the job and I got it. And so we moved out to California. And the company that uh, the HD Harvey Associates, as I mentioned in my email, is pretty unique in that we also do basic research. And that's the National Science Foundation funded and stuff. It's nonprofit. The company has it's a very technically robust company that, you know, we have over 500 refereed publications as a group. Yeah, I, it went up in the ranks pretty quickly because, you know, in addition to the science, I also uh, understand just being responsive to clients. We have a saying that we base all of our calls on biology and we, we give the same answer to the, no matter who asks it. <laughs> but you have, yeah, understanding how to work with clients and with agencies. I mean, you also have to be able to go into a, a competitive environment and, and sell your team. And we have some great scientists that are not necessarily business types or good at telling themselves, or, <laughs> but they're great scientists. And so we're a group that sort of has the spectrum of what we need. So talk a little bit about your involvement with Debbie Shearwater and the Pelagic Tours. Yeah, Linda and I both lead uh, maybe 12 boat trips a year for Debbie, and that's all volunteer, although uh, we are working on her data now. She's got 40 years of, of data, and we've got funding from the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation to analyze data on ashy storm petrels. Uh, her data set is one of the most robust data sets on that species, and eventually we want to go back and publish all of her data on seabird populations. So what else are you doing in the birding world? I've been on the California Bird Records Committee for about 20 years. Uh, I was um, the American Birds, North American Birds Regional Editor for Seabirds for about 10 years. And I'm, I'm right now I'm working on a, I'm co-authoring a publication for the Western Field Ornithologist for the California Bird Records Committee. But birding, I still, I bird all the time as much as we, you know, I can. Um, I don't get out in the field on the job anymore, really. It's pretty rare. But my wife and I just got back from birding four days in the desert uh, over the Memorial Weekend. I'm enjoying county birding because it's get, getting me to different areas to bird that I would normally not get to. And it, I'm learning actually, even at this point, some more about micro distribution, which I think is fun. And it's a great state to bird in. So we both still really love getting out. Plus, my wife is intensely interested in botany. So while we're out in the field, she goes from birds to botany. And <laughs> well, Scott, thank you so much for your time. There is so much more we could talk about. I agree. And I appreciate the, the opportunity uh, to talk about myself. <laughs>